One of the interesting questions is here is, you know, could bin Laden have been captured or should he have been captured? And um, this is, by the way, the first question I have. I, I, my book has been published in Danish and German, German and Norwegian, and I was on a book tour there. And the first question a European audience has is, why didn't you capture bin Laden? This is usually the 10th question an American audience has. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, and I think it's a legitimate question. And uh, there was certainly a contingency plan for bin Laden being captured. They had a contingency plan for anything. They had the playbook, which was like this thick, with all the different things that could happen. And there were branches and sequels. So, you know, a captured bin Laden, a captured wounded bin Laden, a captured hostile bin Laden, a captured compliant bin Laden. And there was a uh, team of interrogators, FBI, CIA, high-value detainee interrogators at Bagram Air Force Base, Arab linguist lawyers that would have basically taken bin Laden and then he would have been, and if, if this whole operation would remain covert, he would have been flown to the USS Carl Vinson cruising off the Arabian Sea where he would be later be buried at sea and he would have been held there for months and he would have been interrogated and it's in international waters and uh, so there was that plan. Of course, that plan never came to fruition. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, public Access, Access America. America. Uh, Bin Laden had 15 minutes to surrender because between the helicopter crashing, which is a pretty loud event, and... Um, him being killed, it was 15 minutes. He didn't surrender. He didn't put up resistance either. He had two guns in his room, an AK-47 and a Makarov submachine gun pistol. Uh, he didn't reach for them. He didn't do anything. And uh, I'm, you know, unfortunately we can't ask him why not, but, um, he, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is that the um, electricity in the house was off. 
the electricity in the neighborhood was off. You'll see in Zero Dark Thirty, there are all these lights and people, that's completely not how it happened. I mean, obviously in a film, you have to have lights, otherwise you can't. But, <laughs> but in reality, it was completely pitch black. Uh, and there was no moon. And of course, that, that was one of the reasons that they had to make a sort of go, no go decision that weekend, because then they'd have to wait another month for no moon. The seals are all wearing night vision goggles. Um, but, you know, it's a confusing situation. There's been a helicopter crash in your house. There was a firefight with a courier. Bin Laden is in a prison of his own making. You know, I described how, it, you know, he could, no one could see in, but he also couldn't see out. And, you know, he may have contemplated that a firefight with the, um, would have killed quite a number of his wives and kids, which is true. Uh, it was a very enclosed space. Or he may have been just paralyzed and surprised, which is also true. Um, but anyway, he didn't put up a fight. Uh, and what does it all mean? Um, you know, it means justice for the victims of 9-11 and their families and the restoration of American national honor on this issue. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda itself was, was doing pretty poorly at the time of bin Laden's death. And there's, uh, there's no better witness for that than bin Laden himself. We've had 17 of these documents from the Abdullah compound have been released by West Point. And they paint a picture of an organization that well understood its pro own problems, Al-Qaeda, Bin Laden was advising Al-Shabaab, the Somali affiliate of Al-Qaeda, don't use the name Al-Qaeda, it's bad for fundraising, you'll attract a lot of negative attention. So he knew the Al-Qaeda brand was in deep trouble. He was contemplating changing the name of the group to a lot of very uncatchy things like the monotheism and uh, jihad group, and he had a lot of other potential names for the group. But he, uh, he also knew they were running out of money uh, he was extremely concerned about the U.S. drone strikes. He was suggesting that al-Qaeda might have to move to eastern Afghanistan, an area called Kunar, which is heavily forested and, and, and very mountainous and therefore a good place to hide from American drones and satellites. He was advocating his, one of his sons, Hamza, to move to Qatar, which of course is one of the richest, is the richest country in the world per capita and also one of the safest. Moved from the tribal regions to Qatar. He, um, he was blue skying about improbable attacks on David Petraeus and President Obama for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And so these documents paint a picture of an organization, the picture that I had before reading these documents. Uh, you know, it's interesting when people are aware of their own, their own problems and Bin Laden was deeply aware of his own problems. And there's been a certain kind of impetus, I think, with the Benghazi attack of September and the attack on the Algerian gas facility in January to say Al-Qaeda is back, which I think is just completely nonsensical. The idea that somehow an attack on a, it's not even an American consulate, it's a CIA listening post in Benghazi, uh, Libya, that was completely undefended, means that Al-Qaeda, and the four Americans that killed very tragically, that somehow Al-Qaeda is back. I mean, Al-Qaeda killed 3,000 Americans here in the United States in the course of basically one and a half hours mm -hmm. on a Tuesday morning. These things are orders of magnitude different. And in fact, there's been no Al-Qaeda attack in the United States since 9-11. There's been no Al-Qaeda attack in the West since the London attacks of July 7, 2005. Al-Qaeda or groups like it haven't taken over any Muslim country. Um, in fact, most of their affiliates are in steep decline. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula control chunks of southern Yemen. They don't anymore. Um, Jamaa Islamiya, their Indonesian affiliate, was uh, something people were very concerned about in 2003. They're mostly out of business. Al-Qaeda in Iraq controlled a third of the country in 2006. They're not, they haven't gone away, and they've re-emerged to some degree in Syria, but they're not where they used to be. Um, Al-Shabaab, the Somali affiliate of Al-Qaeda, controlled 
most of southern Somalia. Now it controls almost not, controls no cities and, and only some rural areas. And um, I mean, I can go on giving other examples, but the point is, is that embedded in the DNA of these groups, Al Qaeda and affiliates and like-minded groups, are the seeds of their own destruction. They kill mus mostly Muslim civilians, which is not impressive for people that present themselves as the defenders of Islam. And that was particularly true in Iraq and well reported in the Arab world. When they come to power, they impose Taliban-style rule on the population. Most people don't want to live under the Taliban. Um, you know, look at what happened in Mali. You know, the French, until relatively recently, Mali was part of their empire. It's pretty unusual for your former, you know, the people that you used to control you to be greeted as liberators, which the French army have been greeted as liberators, and people are dancing and singing in the streets for the French in Mali. Um, so, you know, that shows how the jihadi militants who ban singing in a country where singing is very important and smoking and you know, amputated hands, I mean, how, this is how they rule. And they did that in Anbar province in Iraq, they did that in, they did that in Afghanistan in pre-9-11. They, they've done that. Wherever they've kind of got power, they'll try and do that. They did that in south, southern Yemen in 2011. Most people don't want to live under this Taliban utopia. Um, and uh, so they kill Muslim civilians. They rule like the Taliban. They have no answers for the real political and uh, economic problems that beset the Muslim world. Um, they made, have made a world of enemies. There's not a category of institution, person, or government they haven't said they're opposed to. The UN, the media, every Western government, every Middle Eastern government, every Muslim who doesn't precisely share their views, Jews, Christians, uh, you know, Chinese government, Russian government, Indian government. You know, it's not a winning strategy to keep adding to your enemies. Miss an episode of Public Access America? Download the SoundCloud app now on your Android or iPhone device to catch up. And finally, uh, they won't engage in conventional politics. And so they won't become Hezbollah or Hamas. I mean, it's, they're incapable of in, in, engaging in conventional politics, first of all, because they think it's un-Islamic to be involved in elections. And secondly, because they didn't do anything. An Al-Qaeda hospital is an oxymoron of the first order. Uh, so they will not engage in conventional politics. All of this is a recipe for either irrelevance or defeat. And, you know, the prognosis for these groups is very, very poor. And the death of bin Laden was just a giant punctuation point because he had founded Al-Qaeda. 9-11 was his strategic conception, a very bad strategic conception, that an attack on the United States would provoke the United States to move out of the Middle East while we're more engaged in the Middle East than we've been in our history. We have huge bases in Kuwait and Bahrain and Qatar, uh, we, have, we just found out today that we have a drone base in Saudi Arabia uh, from the Washington Post. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're engaged in a, a sort of low-level war in Yemen, and we're engaged in Afghanistan, we were engaged in Iraq. So his whole strategy was, was a failure. And, and, you know, after 9-11, a lot of people said this was like Pearl Harbor. Yes, of course, it was a surprise attack, and that there was information in the system that should have perhaps been more seriously taken. But it was also al-Qaeda's Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> uh, just as Pearl Harbor ineluctably led to the collapse of Imperial Japan. The 9-11 attacks led to the end of Al-Qaeda, and in fact, ended in Al-Qaeda's founder and leader's death. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a good news story. Uh, it is a good news story. Uh, you know, this group is, they committed essentially a kamikaze attack on the United States. They paid a tremendous uh, price for it. Al-Qaeda means the base in Arabic. They never recovered anything like the base they had in Afghanistan. And they're left with a sort of, a kind of mindless strategy that's never going to work and a tactic which is only violence and it's a sort of form of nihilism that is putting them on the wrong side of history. Um, and um, 
it's well understood around the Muslim world that they're not offering anything of any particular value. Um, so I'll take any questions. Go ahead. Do you think uh, there was a chance at all to have captured uh, Osama bin Laden uh, in Bora Bora if we, if we would have used conventional U.S. forces instead of relying on the Afghanis? I mean, I think the short answer to that is yes. Um, or, or maybe. I mean, the <laughs> here is, you know, I get into that in some detail in the book. Again, WikiLeaks was useful because it, it kind of filled in some blanks. I've been about it. I've been to the I've been to the site of the battle of Tora Bora twice. I've interviewed, you know, the CIA officers and Delta Force officers who were on the ground. I've interviewed the Afghan warlords on whom we relied, and um, you know, I've, and then I, um, I've also interviewed by, by email General Tommy Franks, who was in charge of the operation overall. And you know, what happened was Gary Burnson, who was a CIA officer in Kabul, and his boss Hank Crumpton, who was the overall special operations commander of CIA operations in Afghanistan, both were <coughs> requested for a battalion of rangers to go in. Now it would have been 800 rangers. Um, and that was denied by, by Tommy Franks. And, and why was it denied? Um, he, says, he said in an answer to an email that I sent him, basically, you know, we weren't really sure that bin Laden was there. The intelligence was sort of mixed. That is not, I'm, uh, unfortunately, that isn't the case. I mean and you can check this very easily yourself, Special Forces have written their own history of the Afghan war, um, which is publicly available. And um, according to the Special Forces history of the war, multiple radio transmissions between December 9th and December 14th, 2001, indicated bin Laden was in, they could hear it. I mean, they, they could, you know, people, people listening knew his voice. There was a CIA guy on the ground who spent six years uh, listening to bin Laden's voice. Uh, and you know, bin Laden was saying, I'm sorry I've let you down, you can leave. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, so bin Laden was definitely there. Uh, Tommy Franks also said, you know, we didn't want to make the same mistakes as the, the Soviets, you know, too many American boots on the ground, and, you know, that's a, that was, a, you know. I think also it's very hard for you to recall right now, but there was a kind of casualty reverse environment at this time in the U.S. military. The idea that Americans couldn't stand uh, U.S. military casualties, which is very strange immediately after 9-11. The last war that the United States had been engaged, engaged in, Kosovo War, there were no casualties. At this point in the Afghan war, more journalists had died than American soldiers. Four journalists had died and one American soldier, which was a uh, uh, CIA official, which is uh, uh, Mike Spann at, in Mazar Sharif. So it had all gone so well also, you know, this kind of using the special forces and the Afghan warlords to overthrow the Taliban. It didn't work to get bin Laden. Public Access America is on Instagram, sharing sneak peeks, episode art, snippets of the stories, and more. Search Big Brain Pod and follow, like, and comment on Instagram. Now, arguing against that, let's say the 800 special uh, rangers have gone in. You know, Torobor, the, the mountains rise to 14,000 feet. It's winter, it's snowing, it's December. Um, you know, this is not an area that's very easy to seal. There are multiple mountain routes into Pakistan. So, the, but the reason then, you know, the reason I say maybe is that they, they didn't try. And final point here is there were more journalists at the Battle of Tarabora than American soldiers, which I think sort of speaks for itself. You could get there if you wanted to. Um, it, it wasn't tried.
about what about the hunt for uh, Bin Laden's number two, Zawari? I think. Is mm. And you and you preparing notes for uh, your book on that? <laughs> no, I think I think I I think people would would be less interested in a book about that uh, because Zawahiri is less important. Um, he's an important figure. Um, he's regarded as sort of divisive and. He's released 27 statements since Bin Laden's death, um, none of which I think anybody's paying any attention to. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms, Access America. America. History in the making. 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 History in the making. Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download the app for free and subscribe to Public Access America to get more episodes like this in your feed every day. 